and welcome to the Cancer Care Network Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the comp workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Trends in Oncology and Treatment Planning, What You Need to Know. And this is part one of a five-part series entitled Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. So we really want these five programs, starting with today's, to give you important information and tips about cancer that will actually help really to be sure that you get the best care possible. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the call. So we have over 484 participants on the call, and you come from all over the United States, um, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas, so really from all different regions. And we have some international participants today on the call from Canada, Ireland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now, today's um, program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of corporations, Gilead, Takeda Oncology, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Pharmaceuticals LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Exoexus. And I really want to thank them all for their support and their cooperation in making this program um, occur. And this, again, this is that five-part series. Now, we have the best speakers today on our program, and they want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Offen. And Dr. Offen is with the Onco Thoracic Oncology Service. He's a lung cancer oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Offen is going to be addressing understanding your cancer diagnosis and treatment options, clinical trial opportunities, participating in decisions about your treatment plans, shared decision-making, and side effect prevention and management in your quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Offen. Hi, everyone. So uh, my name is Mike Offen, and I thank you very much for the introduction and for um, everyone being here today for this call. Um, so as a lung cancer doctor, I, I talk a lot about certain types of treatments, but today I'd like to kind of keep it more broad to cover all different types of cancer types. Um, so first and foremost, when it comes to understanding a diagnosis of cancer, um, it is important that both as the physician, you and family members understand that this is obviously going to be a kind of life-altering path ahead of you, regardless of the stage or the type of tumor, and it's understandably overwhelming. Um, as a physician, I don't expect my, you know, my patients to completely understand every single thing the first time I say it. And if you remember nothing from what I say, I think the most important thing you can take away from this is it is perfectly okay and it's, in my opinion, uh, encouraged to take notes and ask questions. Um, some of the best interactions I'll have with patients when it comes to a new diagnosis or a new conversation is when they come with a list of questions. Um, it makes me know that they're engaged and they're curious, and it helps me kind of understand what their concerns are. So it's, um, it is by no means a burden to your physician to have those questions. I, I very much encourage them. Um, so in terms of understanding your diagnosis, when, when you first meet an oncologist, there's going to be a litany of tests. There may be pictures taken, biopsies, blood work, or a combination thereof. And it can be very confusing to understand exactly what's going on. Um, every test that's ordered is ordered for a reason. And it's important if you don't understand why you're going through something that you ask. Um, to help figure out the type of cancer and how uh, the stage or how advanced it is, we at many times will get pictures that can be CAT scans, MRIs, or ultrasounds. And many times need biopsies, which can either be done with surgery or um, a skilled team of like an interventional radiologist who can do biopsies with uh, CAT scan machines. 
once we figure out the stage, which kind of tells us how advanced the tumor is, we can sit down and talk to you about different possibilities for treatment. As we kind of have become more advanced as the year goes on, years go on, we've, we've become um, more aware of very specific factors in tumors that we may not have been aware of, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. This may be things you've heard about in terms of genetic testings on tumor or even with immunotherapy testings. Um, and I will defer to my colleague later on to go over some more of those specifics. But in general, what I'd like to talk about now is kind of how do we treat a cancer? And as you can imagine, it's very specific to the type of cancer. Um, but in general, I like to break it down into two major categories. Local therapy, which can be surgery or radiation or a combination thereof, or medical therapy, which can be pill or IV-based depending on the exact type of cancer. As a medical oncologist, I'm much more versed in the medical therapy, so I'm going to focus more on that today. Um, in terms of medical therapy, one I'd like to start with is targeted therapy. You may have heard of this as precision therapy or molecular therapy. Many times this is looking for a gene or a marker in the tumor or blood that can match to a specific type of medicine. A way I like to explain it is a lock and a key. So the first step to figure out if targeted therapy can work for you is for your doctor and your pathology team to figure out, do you have the specific mutation or lock in the tumor for which I have a key that can fit it? If you don't have the lock, giving you the key would not be helpful. But if you do, we would talk about giving you that medicine as part of your treatment. Another option which you may be aware of from your physician or, or even TV at times is immunotherapy. Um, these are discussed much in the mainstream now and it can be very confusing to understand when or when not to use them. These medicines work a little differently than your standard chemotherapies. They work by actually telling your immune system to try to find the cancer and fight it. So it indirectly attacks the cancer using your own immune system. This does not work for everyone, and as we become more advanced in our understanding of immunotherapy, we are doing more testing to try to figure out who would get the most benefit from these types of medicines. And it's important that when you meet with your clinical team that you ask questions about immunotherapy and you have a discussion why it may or may not be recommended. Another important therapy is chemotherapy. These are kind of the um, more standard medicines that we're more familiar with. These have been around for, at some, some of these medicines have been around for many years while others are very new. Um, they work by directly killing the cancer cell like a toxin. Um, I, a lot of times when I meet patients and they hear the word chemotherapy, it may invoke kind of images of past loved ones from decades ago or TV shows about it being very difficult. And while no oncologist will ever say that chemotherapy or any medicine we can give is going to be without side effects, we have come a long way in trying to manage the side effects. Ultimately, we give these medicines to try to help, to try to make people feel better and live as long as we can get. And if the side effects are intolerable or causing problems, you need to let your clinical team know, and we can make changes. Another important part of uh, treating of cancer is always to consider clinical trial opportunities. Clinical trials are using investigational medicine, so not something you could prescribe easily over the counter. Um, and it's trying to figure out if these medicines are as good as or better than what is currently available. Clinical trials um, are available throughout the United States and the world, and your, your doctor will talk to you about them. The timing of when to use them, sometimes in the first treatment of the cancer or other times later in the treatments of cancer, um, will have to be a shared discussion between you and your doctor based on the certain clinical scenario. There are many good websites if you were interested in looking um, to see if there were any uh, specific trials for your tumor or if a gene were found. Um, just be careful Googling because there are some that may or may not have all the information. Uh, one website we do uh, routinely use throughout the United States is clinicaltrials.gov. Um, if you find a trial on there that you think could be helpful, keep in mind all trials are very nuanced, but you can print that out and bring it with you to your doctor, and it's always nice to have that conversation. Um, to briefly talk about clinical trials, this will be a bit of a whirlwind discussion. Um, they come in three major categories, phase one, two, and three. 
Phase one tends to be the first time a medicine is being used in a person. There is usually a lot of good evidence about how it works in a lab, and now they're ready to see if it can help in a patient. Um, usually phase one is looking for the right dose, trying to figure out what is a good dose of the medicine to give that won't cause a lot of side effects for the patient. Phase two, which usually comes from a phase one, takes the dose that they think is the best from phase one and then gives it to some more patients to figure out, A, making sure it's safe as they expect, and B, start to get an idea of how well does it work to fight the cancer. And that leads to the large kind of phase three trials, which is looking at a larger group of people, and at times it can be what we call randomized. So some people may get the study medicine and others may either not get it or can get a placebo. An important thing here and something that comes up in my clinic a lot when people hear about placebo or randomized, we would not withhold in a trial standard medicines. What that means, if your doctor was going to give you a chemotherapy on the trial and that was the standard medicine, but the, the trial was looking at a new pill, some people may get the pill and some people may not. However, everyone would still get the standard medicine. We would not withhold what we know works. So whether you get randomized or not, it's important to keep that in mind. Um, so that's as much as I'm going to say about trials for now, and we can, if there are questions, and I'm sure there may be, I'm happy to answer them later. Um, another part to discuss would be kind of shared decision-making and participating in your decisions about your treatment planning. This is exquisitely important. You may walk into a doctor's office with a new diagnosis and with all the new vocabulary words, procedures, and recommendations, it can feel very overwhelming and out of your hands. But I assure you, you do have control over many of the things going on. As a medical oncologist and as a physician member of a cancer center, our job is a service industry. I provide I, I provide information, I provide options, and I provide what I think are the best options. But ultimately, we tailor those to your needs. So for instance, if I meet a patient who is a piano tuner, I may choose a different type of medicine to make sure that their hearing stays okay. As opposed to the same person, if they have anemia or low blood counts, I may choose a different medicine. And these decisions are based off of me talking to the patient and you telling me what's important to you. If you say that you know, you're very worried about hair loss, Sometimes there may be alternatives, while other times there may not be, but it's important to express that. Um, in terms of pictures and workup, again, it's important for you to let us know if you, are, if you have claustrophobia or you're afraid of tight spaces, maybe we can do a CAT scan instead of an MRI. The main takeaway here is it's important to feel empowered when you talk to your medical team. And a lot of the things are somewhat out of your hands, but this is not. And if there are certain wants or goals or things that are important to you, you should let us know, and we will do everything we can to abide by them. Lastly, I've been asked to talk about side effects and prevention uh, and management thereof. So in terms of treating cancer with either chemotherapy, with radiation, surgery, immunotherapy, or targeted therapy, Unfortunately, everything always has the possibility of a side effect. There, there is no intervention that we could ever offer as doctors that doesn't have you know, at least some chance of a side effect. It's important to go over those chances, understand the, if they're common or rare, and talk about ways that we can try to either prevent them or treat them if they occur. So every type of medicine may have a different type of side effect, and when it comes to chemotherapy, we actually... Um, when I referenced before come a long way, a lot of that's actually been in the way we prevent side effects. So we have medicines now that can help combat nausea, things that you may be familiar with, medicines like Zofran or Ondansetron, um, metoclopramide, Compazine. These are all very pro uh, good nausea medicines. Steroids can be used as well. Um, there are many different medicines all designed to go after different side effects. And your doctor usually will have what I like to call a recipe for each chemotherapy regimen of what they give to try to help prevent them. If you notice the side effects are occurring once you leave the doctor, it's important to call and let us know. And many times there are other actions we can take to try to help mitigate them. The goal of care is to tailor the treatment towards you. And ultimately, it is not to make you feel ill. 
It is not to make you debilitated. It is to try to improve your quality of life. And if you're having profound side effects or not feeling well from the chemotherapy, it's important you tell us. Quality of life is very important, and I kind of left this towards the end of my talk here because I wanted it to stand alone. Up until this point, we've been talking about what we can do, aggressive care, aggressive medicines, but I haven't really talked about the supportive care aspect and kind of the ancillary aspect to how we treat cancer. So whether you are looking for aggressive care in, or looking for kind of a more supportive or palliative care, there's always a role to consider the quality of life and how we can best support you. If you come into my office and you're on active chemotherapy, do not be afraid to tell me if you have a trip or you have an engagement that you want to go. We can and will move schedules around if we need to, to help accommodate that. If the point comes where your symptoms are you know, very bothersome, there are other team members we can refer to, pain management, supportive care, integrative medicine, social work, and we are always more than happy to do that. So I would say in conclusion for this portion of the talk, you should feel empowered about when a doctor talks to you about your treatment and your diagnosis to ask questions, take notes, let us know what your goals are, what your wants are, and we will do everything we can that is what we feel to be medically safe to accommodate them and to find a kind of shared path forward that works. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Austin. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful overview of really um, all the new trends and, and, and treatment planning and just everyone, everything that people really need to know. So thank you so much. That was really excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist. She's a consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology and Laboratory Genetics and Genomics, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Director Molecular Anatomic Pathology Laboratory, and Co-Director Genomics Laboratory Mayo Clinic. Dr. Kerr is going to be addressing the role of the pathologist, genomics, and genetics, the importance of self-advocacy in your oncology care, and key questions to ask your, ask your healthcare team. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Hello. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the introduction, and thank you, Dr. Offen, for such a great overview and introduction to what I'm going to be talking about for the next part of the conference, which will be a pathologist's perspective on cancer, genetic testing, and self-advocacy in cancer care. So let me first start talking about what a pathologist does in general. Um, many of you may be more familiar with the pathologists that you see on TV that are in, involved in forensic pathology or autopsy pathology, specifically in the setting of criminal investigations. Autopsy is an important part of a pathologist's training, but few of us actually practice medicine in the setting that you see on the popular crime shows. Uh, on the contrary, most pathologists go to medical school just like your other doctors, but then choose to receive specialized residency and subspecialty training in clinical laboratory testing. This is not research, but clinical testing that occurs in the clinical laboratory associated with your doctor's office or hospital. And this specialized training in clinical laboratory testing lasts a minimum of three years and can run as long as seven or more years. And after this training, a pathologist typically oversees a variety of tests that are done in the clinical laboratory. This can be anything from routine blood tests that are ordered by your oncologist to examining small tissue biopsies and fluids and even to sectioning and examining the larger amounts of tissue that are sometimes removed during a cancer surgery. And this is why your pathologist is so important to your cancer care and why it is important to go over your pathology and other laboratory reports with your cancer team. Um, studies have found that up to 80% of clinical decisions are based on laboratory results, including your pathology report. So now let's talk uh, in more detail about what a pathologist does specifically in cancer care. Um, first, I will address what goes into the preparation of a pathology report. So cancer patients may initially have a small biopsy of tissue that is examined by a pathologist to confirm a diagnosis of cancer. 
Alternatively, a tumor might be removed in entirety for this diagnosis, and a pathologist may be involved in figuring out how far the cancer has spread, which is also called staging the cancer. The tumor samples are examined by a pathologist um, just using their naked eye uh, in an examination that is also called a gross examination. Uh, and this is to measure the size of the specimen, the weight, the, the color of the tissue, and other characteristics of the tissue. Some of the tissue is also then examined under a microscope to more precisely classify what type of tumor it is. Uh, the final classification may depend also upon special studies. So these additional tests might include special stains of the tissue that are interpreted under a microscope by a pathologist. Um, but sometimes genetic testing of the tumor tissue is also done in a molecular laboratory. And this can be done both for determining the type of cancer and to help with matching the patient with a therapy. After this thorough examination, of the specimen, a report is completed by the pathologist to include the gross examination, any results of additional tests, a microscopic description, and a final diagnosis, as well as staging information and comments that may be helpful to explain any unusual features of the case. Reports often include a standard checklist that summarizes your tumor and the extent of spread in a standardized format that's sometimes called a synoptic report. I recommend getting a copy of your pathology report to read for yourself, as it is part of your medical record and really a key piece of information that is used in determining the next steps in treatment. The pathology report might seem like it is written in a foreign language at first due to the specialized terms that we use, and so I think it can be really helpful to go over your pathology report with your cancer care providers to make sure that you understand the report and how it affects your care. In some cases where the diagnosis is really unusual or complex, you may even want to talk directly to your pathologist about your report. I always recommend first talking with the doctors who you know in person, and they can absolutely help you get in touch with a pathologist if needed. And I do occasionally talk to patients about their pathology reports. Um, there are also some great online resources for patients to help understand pathology reports, and I specifically recommend a resource from the College of American Pathologists, or CAP, that's called simply Your Pathologist. And you can check out that website at yourpathologist.org, and Dr. Mesner can also share that information with you at the conclusion of the conference. Okay, so now we've talked about um, Pathology, pathology in general and pathology reports. Uh, I'll, I'll next talk a little bit more in depth about genetic testing. So um, as we've heard about briefly uh, from the prior speaker, genetic testing um, takes a variety of forms. It can be also known as genomic testing, molecular testing, or DNA testing. And basically all of the cells in the human body contain genetic material, which includes chromosomes, which are little packets of, of what you might have heard of as DNA. DNA is the code or the language that a cell uses to carry out all of the things it needs to do, like grow and function normally. In tumors, there are changes in the genetic code um, that can mean changes in the DNA uh, spelling or what we call mutations. Tests can be done on tumor samples to figure out what is going on in the tumor genetic code that is not occurring in the normal tissues of the body. These tumor mutations can be what is driving the tumor to grow out of control, and some of these mutations can be exploited or targeted by many of the new types of cancer treatment. An example of a tumor mutation is a KRAS mutation in colon cancer, which is a small change in the spelling of the DNA sequence in the tumor that does not occur in the rest of the normal cells in the body. Finding this mutation means that certain types of cancer therapy should not be used. A cancer cell can also have what is called amplification of a gene, which means there are too many copies of a small part of the DNA sequence. An example of this is what's called HER2 gene amplification, 
um, which is an alteration that can be seen in breast cancer, although some other types of cancer can also have this alteration. And this amplification is targetable with a certain type of cancer therapy. Cancers can also have chromosomes that are broken and reattached to one another in an abnormal way. And this abnormal chromosome is called a fusion or rearrangement. An example of this is the ALK fusion in rare types of lung cancer that can be targeted with a specific drug. Now, genetic testing can also be done using a patient's blood to look for unique changes in the DNA that a person is born with, so not in the tumor, but in their normal cells. And these mutations can cause a person to have an inherited risk of certain kinds of cancer. These types of cancers tend to run in families. And you may have heard of some of these tests, including BRCA testing in breast and ovarian cancer families, or mismatch repair gene testing for Lynch syndrome in families with colon and endometrial cancer. Now, as I have described, uh, determining the type of cancer present and the extent of spread are the first steps in determining which type of treatment is most likely to work best. But the tumor type alone, um, without knowing anything about genetic testing, may be the most useful in determining the first-line treatment. But this being said, once the cancer type is known and the type of cancer, um, and so that once the cancer type is known, the type of cancer predicts which genetic testing could be the most cost-effective in finding a mutation that matches well with a specific cancer treatment. For example, there are a limited number of treatments that are available for lung cancer, and some of these treatments will work best if a particular mutation is present, and it's actually sort of a small um, number of genes that can be tested for to match with these treatments. So testing for those specific mutations can be a more cost-effective way of identifying a treatment than some of these larger genomic tests for many lung cancer patients. However, it's, um, it's important to talk with your oncologist about sort of which a testing approach is better, be a small panel of genes versus a, large, a larger test, a more expensive test that looks for a larger number of mutations, because sometimes um, those rare mutations that are found on those larger panels can also be important, especially in the setting of things like clinical trials. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about immune therapy in cancer, which Dr. Offen had covered briefly. So cancer doctors are sometimes able to use a patient's own body cells to fight cancer. And just as your body recognizes an infection and fights it off, your body can also recognize and kill cancer cells. These cells that fight infections and kill cancer are part of what's called your immune system. So cancers are smart, though, and they often are good at hiding from the immune system. But now there are certain drugs that are being used in cancer therapy that can help your immune system recognize and kill the cancer cells better. And these are generally called immunotherapy. There are certain cancers like melanoma, which is skin cancer, where immunotherapy is usually tried in almost everybody that has the metastatic melanoma cancer. In other types of cancer, though, um, the response to immunotherapy may be dependent on if there, certain markers are, are present. So there are tests that can help predict if an immunotherapy will work. And these tests can include special stains, uh, such as looking for a protein called PDL1. Uh, another type of testing involves looking at what's called mismatch repair proteins or tumor microsatellite instability as markers to predict if the tumor is likely to be recognized uh, by the drug-enhanced immune system. So if these markers are present, it's more likely that this drug is going to help your immune system fight the cancer. Uh, there are newer predictive tests, though, that are coming out all the time uh, in this field of, of cancer therapy. So genetic testing can be pretty complicated. And it's important to ask your cancer doctors about what testing can and should be done. Tests for mutations that cause cancer to run in families could provide important information for your family members to detect sometimes some kinds of these cancers earlier and even prevent them. Tests for mutations in your tumor could be very important in determining your cancer treatment. For treatment, the type of test order depends on the tumor type, how much tumor specimen is available for testing, 
and what type of genetic changes need to be detected to determine treatment. Okay, so we've talked about the importance of a pathologist in your care, why it is important to understand your pathology report, and we've talked a little bit about genetic testing in familial cancer and in tumors to determine what types of therapy might work best. Finally, because I get a lot of questions about this topic, I want to touch on the role of advocating for yourself and getting second opinions in cancer care. Second opinions can be asking another doctor what is the best overall treatment for your cancer, and this generally would involve asking to see a doctor at a different hospital or clinic for this overall assessment. Uh, sometimes, though, without leaving home, uh, a doctor may be able to ask for an electronic consult from another institution where a doctor reviews your records and gives an opinion about the plan of care. You can also ask for an opinion about the diagnosis for your tumor, especially if it is something that is really rare or unusual. It turns out that even with extensive training and certification, a pathologist's ability to classify a tumor under microscope is really not entirely perfect. In difficult cases, pathologists show the tissue to other pathologist colleagues or even to experts around the world to determine the most appropriate diagnosis for the tumor. Just like other cancer doctors may disagree about what the best treatment is for your cancer, pathologists can also sometimes disagree on a tumor diagnosis. And this difference can have a huge impact on what treatment is recommended. I encourage you to talk to your cancer doctors about second opinions, including second opinions in pathology as they often have a very good sense of when a second opinion on a diagnosis or treatment may be helpful. A large part of my practice personally is looking at cases for second opinion that are sent to me by other pathologists or at the request of other cancer doctors. Your doctor can ask for your pathology material to be sent in the mail to another center for a second opinion when appropriate. A second review of pathology is also often done as a routine part of a medical second opinion as well. So if you're going to get a second opinion on your cancer care from another oncologist or surgeon, they will often request that the glass slides from your tumor be sent to their laboratory for a second review by the pathologist who they work with in their center. Okay, so with that, we have covered pathology, genetic testing, and advocating for yourself by understanding your pathology reports and asking about second opinions. I will turn the conference back over to Dr. Mesner and I would be happy to answer any questions at the end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding as well and, and very informative. And, and, and I know there'll be questions for you. And, and in terms of the references that Dr. Kerr provided, the resources, we're actually at the end of the program, um, you will be getting not today, probably tomorrow, you'll be getting an evaluation. And the evaluation will include all the resources mentioned during the program and even before the program, any information that was given to you that we think might be a nice reminder for you. So in addition to it being a, an evaluation, it also has a lot of nice um, you know, uh, information, both uh, num numbers to call organizations or their websites so that you can contact them or hyperlinks so that you can basically connect. So that will be... Um, so that will be useful to all of you. So before we take questions, so please start putting your, thinking of your questions because we have, this, we have wonderful speakers so I'm happy to answer your questions. I want to say a few words to update you about the services of Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide a host of services, um, really a bit sort of like a, I suppose, a bit like a, 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 a shopping cart of all kinds of things that you could possibly get, except they're free. So that's the difference with their free services. So we do offer financial and practical assistance, and we do have um, something called a copay foundation that is able to give particular help with the cost of some of the chemotherapies that you may be taking. And in addition, we do have a large staff of oncology social workers. They're master's level trained oncology social workers, and they're here to provide really supportive counseling services to all of you, um, to anyone who thinks you might benefit from them, or wants to call and see, you know, what we can offer to you. Um, and so many people call for something very practical, and then as they're talking to one of the social workers, they begin to see if there are other things they can help them with. And common things that people call about are, you know, I'm really, 
I don't quite know how to cope with my cancer. I mean, how did this happen? You know, what am I supposed to do now? Um, how do I talk to my children or my boss or my family or my friends? How do I tell them about my cancer? Um, and uh, lots of many other questions that people have about just how do I deal with this? And so, and the social workers are trained to actually talk with you. And we talk to people. People actually call us on the phone. We have an 800 number. Or they um, go to our website and post a question and, and that followed up by one of our social workers so that um, it's accessible to anybody in the country in the sense or in the world to some extent and just the, um, the fact that it's, it's just um, you, can, you can go to our website or you can actually call us on the phone at an 800 number. Um, the other, um, other service we offer is we have a lot of different types of support groups. Well, some people like a support group because you're with other people who may have similar concerns. And we have both telephone support groups. So those are actually in real time in the sense that you, there's a, they're maybe in different time zones, but there's a specific time that those groups meet. They're usually about an hour in length. And we also have online support groups um, that are facilitated by our oncology social work staff. And those groups, we have about 138 of them, and they're on all different types of topics for caregivers, for people living with different types of cancers. So all the different types of cancers, we would have a support group for those. We have uh, support groups for young adults, um, for middle-aged adults, for older adults, um, again, for partners, for um, you know, uh, family members, for adult children. So the, the topics are really every topic you can imagine we have an online support group for. And if we don't have it and some of you feel a need for it, you can suggest it to us and we probably would start one. So that's that um, because there's so many people who are really interested in, these, in, in, these, in, these, in this type of format because it is so easy to access. You don't have to travel anywhere. Um, basically, you can just really um, connect on, online. With, it's all done professionally, so password protected and your identity is protected, and indeed um, we've put a lot of effort into that privacy and confidentiality issue. So with that being said, we also do offer these educational programs, and one of the things that people often ask and why we do these programs is that people often want more information about their type of cancer, the treatment of cancer, um, so those, these are these programs that offer that. And then we do have publications that are often based on those uh, programs. And we have um, a, a very informative website. So lots of services that you can access. So with that all being said, we now do have time for questions. So I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And if Norma could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to Norma, who will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And Thank you. Let the questions begin. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you would like to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star one. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so, um, so, and this is one, we'll start with Dr. Austin for this one. You, um, you talked about uh, clinical trials. Where can I find good clinical trials for lung cancer? <laughs> so that's a great question. Um, I would say there are a host of different ways to find good trials. Um, one is to talk to your doctor um, if, if they have any recommendations. Uh, something you can do if you wanted to try to find some options on your own was the website I kind of referenced, clinicaltrials.gov. Um, there is a way you can actually search based on location, so where you physically are, um, your type of cancer, and if you have any kind of key words or phrases. So, for instance, if you happen to have a genetic report that shows a specific type of mutation and you wanted to know if there were any trials, you'd be able to look that up. Importantly, kind of as I said before, trials are very subtle and nuanced in, you know, who they think the medicine will work best in. So what I would say is if you find the trial which you think may be of interest to you and may be applicable, I would print it out and bring it to talk about with your doctor, and they can help let you know if they think that trial is a good fit or not. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Umpker, do you want to add anything? or? Oh, no, thank you. Okay, all right. So uh, very helpful. And um, 
and the clinicalsouth.gov is a wonderful site. And they also, you can call, they do have an 800 number as well, which you'll be getting also in the resources you'll get, so you'll be able to actually access them either on the telephone or on the website. Um, okay, um, and we have another question in front of our participants. Um, so this one, again, for Dr. Offen to start, how do I know if I'm getting a good treatment plan? I'm not feeling very confident and have second thoughts about getting chemotherapy for my cancer. Um, why can't the doctor just, um, why can't I just have surgery? So the question is getting a second opinion. So what I would say is if a second opinion at any point during your treatment or even a third or fourth opinion is always reasonable. So if, if you have questions and um, obviously the first step I'd recommend is to talk to the doctor that is treating you at present. But if, you know, after you have that, you still have questions and you want to maybe get a different set of eyes or a different care team involved, then there's nothing wrong with going to talk to a different team. In regards to kind of specific treatment options, it's all very dependent on your type of cancer. Um, and it would require kind of an expert consultation. So um, I would say that, you know, start by talking to your local doctor, let them know your concerns and doubts, and if you feel that you need a second opinion, don't hesitate. Just I would just make a second opinion consultation. Thank you. Um, and we have another question again um, for uh, Dr. Offen. Are there any new current medications that assist with neuropathy? So that's a great question. So. I'm a medical oncologist. I'm familiar with a few. If there are very new ones that are up and coming, I may not be as well-versed, but that would be a great question to ask kind of the the entire cancer team. Uh, at our institution, it would be probably our neurology team or supportive care. Um, medicines I tend to use for it are medicines like gabapentin or neurontin or other kind of neuropathy medicines that may be used in things like diabetes or other medical issues. We can actually repurpose uh, for cancer neuropathy. Um, there may also be kind of um, physical therapy techniques or occupational therapy techniques that can be helpful. But if you have a prolonged or a bad side effect that may not be managed well right now, it may be reason to see if you don't already have kind of a multidisciplinary team, um, maybe to ask your oncologist if they could refer you to see maybe a neurologist. Excellent. Thank you. Um, excellent. These are great questions, actually. Um, and... Um, we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, so the question is, um, it's again about clinical, so a lot of questions about clinical trials. Um, so um, how do I know if a clinical, if Dr. Austin, how do I know if a clinical trial is right for me? My oncologist hasn't mentioned any. Do I only try clinical trials when, when treatments do not work for my, for my cancer? That's a great question. So kind of, there are, there are two major things to think about when it comes to a clinical trial. One is, is there a trial that is right for you? Meaning, is there a trial that when it was designed was made to look into how a medicine works for your type of cancer, um, a person that has your medical issues, and a person that has your possible gene or markers? Um, so that's the first question. Is the trial available and is it a good fit? The second question is, when's the right time to use it? Every trial is designed uh, in, a different, in, in a different treatment line. So what that means is there may be some trials that were designed as the first times you're getting your medicine for cancer. That's when this trial could be considered. There are many others that may be in the second or later line, meaning if the first line of medicine did not work for, uh, or is not continuing to work, you may then consider the trial. What I would say is it's very specific, again, to your tumor type, your medical, um, other medical illnesses, and then your genes or markers. If you're curious about a trial, you should ask your doctor, are there any available for the next stage if and when I need another treatment line? And I think that's the kind of conversation to have. But in general, clinical trials are always a very reasonable discussion to have. The answer may be, Right now, standard medicines, the ones that are approved, are the right fit, and that's a fine answer. That's why we have these standard options. But asking about the trials is always very reasonable, and I would encourage it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, 
a question for uh, Dr. Kerr. Um, can patients actually speak directly to the pathologist? Can they actually uh, make an appointment or talk with them about their pathology report? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And, you know, different institutions have different policies in place for talking to pathologists. And the reason for that, uh, the reason that you might find difficulty at first getting in touch directly with your pathologist is that we don't, we haven't seen you face-to-face. -face, and so there are concerns about confidentiality, you know, making sure I'm talking to you and not someone um, who, you know, maybe doesn't have, have permission to know about your medical care. And so sometimes what you might encounter when you ask to talk to a pathologist is there might be some sort of identity verification to make sure that the pathologist is talking to the correct person and not breaking confidentiality. But um, once you get sort of through that process that's put in place by the institution, you absolutely can talk to your pathologist. And I do talk to patients occasionally, especially when there's something confusing about a pathology report or there's been some sort of disagreement uh, amongst pathologists at different institutions, and it's sort of hard to figure out, um, you know, who's right, is a third opinion appropriate, what is actually the issue that we're disagreeing about, and those are the types of things that I think pathologists um, are actually really in a perfect position to help explain to patients, especially if they're having those, um, they're not really getting what they think is a satisfactory answer directly from their cancer doctors. And sometimes you could even, um, you know, talk with both at the same time. So you might set up a call um, both with your cancer doctor and with a pathologist to talk over what issue you're having trouble understanding. And I think, you know, you should really advocate for yourself. And if you really want to talk with your pathologist, um, you, you should do that and, and try to get a hold of them and talk through the issues that you're having trouble understanding. I actually do know that some pathologists um, have, have actually office hours where they do have um, patients come and actually look at their cancers with them. Um, so there are those options open, and if you're interested in that aspect of your care, I absolutely think that you should, should go for it. And actually, a follow-up to that question is: Is that happening more? Is that a, a trend that you see um, increasing um, in terms of people wanting to to meet directly with, you know, having an office hour and having time with the pathologist? Or is that is that? Um, yeah. So there was there was actually a big um, focus on that at our big pathology meeting this year, the the USCAP, which is our big United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology meeting. Um, and the things that were described are really fascinating and I think are really great for the field of pathology. So we actually have a program at Mayo Clinic where patients who have had transplants of, of their organs have 3D images made of that organ, and they actually meet with a pathologist and go over the structures and really understand sort of at a very intimate level what this tissue was that was taken out and, and what's wrong with it. And that's been a really exciting program here at Mayo Clinic to have that 3D imaging modeling and meeting with pathologists about those. So I think, I think pathologists um, across the board are really starting to venture out of the laboratory and, and interact more directly with patients. Excellent. Thank you. Um, this is a really, really wonderful question. And another one now from um, one of our online participants, um, for Dr. Offen. Um, how often do you introduce or recommend palliative or supportive care program services during initial consults with patients? So, is that what is the standard in terms of that? Um, I guess so, that's the question. Yeah. So, I think it's it's um, always important to have the conversation on the initial visit about kind of. Here are the options we have for what can be done, but it's important to know what you as a patient want to be done. Um, so if I were to meet somebody and they were either too ill or they weren't a good fit for chemotherapy, meaning they had other medical problems that would make it dangerous or maybe they were um, a little too sick or not, not feeling well enough that I thought maybe giving medicine could hurt them, I would bring it up then. Or if somebody brought it up, I would also bring it up. Um, in general, I'm a proponent that it is never too early to have a discussion about the use of supportive care or palliative medicine. Um, without getting too deep into kind of the science and data, there was actually a big journal article that came out a few years ago in one of our biggest journals 
looking at, in lung cancer, the use of hospice and palliative care for patients that may not have had great options to treat the cancer, meaning maybe they already got medicine and it wasn't working or they weren't feeling well and we weren't recommending medicine. And we found that people that that we referred to and got established with hospice had less symptoms and actually tended to live slightly longer um, by a couple of weeks. And what we feel overall that means is having hospice involved towards the end of life may actually provide an increased level of services and kind of resources to the patient and their family that is just beneficial all around, both from a medical perspective, a symptom perspective, and a psychological perspective. Um, So what I would say is, in my clinic, I probably bring it up with almost all new visits that it's an option. Um, And then I advocate it kind of as time goes on based on the clinical situation. Thank you. That's excellent. And and, and so, uh, the follow-up to that was actually the um, question of just offering people, like, if they have, if they're going to start treatment and it's expected that there will be side effects. Um, um, usually does the oncologist handle that only, or would they bring in a supportive care team or um, to kind of handle any of the expected side effects that someone might run into with their treatment? So I I would say it probably all depends on the kind of unique situation and the comfort level of the the practice provider with the medicine being given. Um, If I'm giving a medicine that, you know, has a high chance of causing nausea, we have an established kind of recipe we give around the chemotherapy to try to combat that. I usually would do that um, with my clinical nursing team and nurse practitioner team. If it was difficult to manage after one dose, I would very quickly refer to what we have here, which is our supportive medicine service, um, which can help manage symptoms. But on the other hand, if I have a patient that's coming to me with known, um, I think one of the other questions was about neuropathy or nerve issues, and I was giving a medicine that I knew could make the nerve issues worse, in that case, I would likely preemptively refer. So I would say it's really a case-by-case decision. But I usually have a very low threshold to refer because they're just as much a part of your cancer team as any other person is. Um, and if basically if you ask for it, if I think it's needed, I would refer the same day. Excellent. So I hope that's helpful to everybody that really these teams are there to really make your lives more comfortable throughout treatment from point of diagnosis um, really, when you start treatment, really important. So, and then we know you're all going to very different centers, and so that's really important just to be aware of that um, for each of you um, that, that these options are there for you. Um, and then, um, question for Dr. Kerr: um, In terms of the difference between, although um, a little bit more about genomic and genetic testing, um, a little bit more about that information. Uh, I'm sorry, specifically... um, So just a a little about the difference between genomic and genetic testing, even though you did address it, but just in terms of it's a complicated concept. Oh, sure. So I actually think of those two things as being related and and possibly the same thing, but sometimes people use those terms differently, so genomic and genetic testing. Um, genomic testing, I guess, refers to the sort of global, globally what's going on with a tumor in terms of not only the genetic code or the DNA, um, but also things that are made as a result of that code, like um, proteins uh, and um, things that might be produced by a cell uh, from the tumor that isn't normally produced. And so... Um, it gets kind of complicated in terms of the terminology, but um, basically genomics, I think of as big and global, what's going on with the tumor, where genetics um, specifically focuses on that genetic code or DNA looking for changes at that base level. Genetic testing tends to be more focused where genomic testing, when we talk about big genomic testing or whole genome sequencing, we're talking about sort of a bigger scale test, usually more expensive, um, where focused genetic testing is typically more targeted and less expensive. I, I hope that sort of answers the, the question. Thank you. 
And um, anyone want to add? Do you want to add anything to that, um, Dr. Allison? Or? Um. No, I, I would say that the use of these kind of genetic testings in lung cancers be, um, is becoming more and more mainstream. And in terms of kind of the referenced expense, um, it's important to kind of discuss with your care provider when they order these tests what is or is not covered by insurance. Um, many of the kind of genetic testing we routinely do for advanced lung cancers, which is the thing I can speak to, actually is um, at least partially covered by most insurance companies. So I wouldn't necessarily not do genetic testing because of concern for you personally getting an expense, but it is something that needs to be factored in and something you should talk to your care team about. And then the care team may include people who might be financial specialists or patient navigators or social workers or people who could help to get help with those extra costs. Is that correct? Correct, correct. Um, and so there is um, a, a question um, here, and it's an important one because I think it is an issue in our field in general, and Dr. Offen, if you could address it. and um, I'll start a little bit with it, but the question is, can you please clarify the difference with palliative care program recommendations with active treatment upon initial diagnosis versus hospice when active treatment ends? Too many people think they are the same. So the concept of you know palliative care from point of diagnosis getting active treatment. Um, and so could you comment about that, Dr. Um, often? Cause yeah, is, of course. I think there's that the term itself, uh, unfortunately, the, the term was changed a while ago. That used to just be, you know, pain and symptom management. And, um, and so symptom management, of course, has to do with treatment side effects and things like that. And the word palliative care then became a little bit hard for the public to understand. So um, I think our questioner is just asking for that clarification for everybody on the call to be clear about that. Yeah, of course. So palliative care and hospice are somewhat intertwined, but they are different. So at what I refer to as supportive medicine could also be thought of as palliative care. Palliative care is when we have a team of experts that is involved from either the beginning of the diagnosis or when a symptom were to occur that can help us kind of in a very expert way manage symptoms, and those could be physical symptoms, psychological symptoms, or even social support symptoms or needs. They're there to help us kind of mediate and mitigate the kind of other things going on related to the treatment and the cancer. Palliative care teams may also be able to help with hospice care for if and when that time comes, but they're not one in the same. Hospice care is a is a a service that we can refer a patient to when they when there's a point in which they no longer want or can safely receive treatment for their cancer. And what hospice care is is a team of experts, usually led by a doctor with many different nursing and nurse practitioners and advanced practice providers involved, who can help a patient or their family with the symptoms involved from the cancer. So the goal changes at that point with hospice from treating the cancer to treating the symptom. And by primarily treating the symptom, the goal is to keep you out of the hospital and keep you feeling as well as we can knowing that we're not giving active cancer care. So palliative care can and should be initiated while on active treatment if a person has symptoms or needs that require it. Palliative care can eventually, if needed, transition to hospice, but those are different things. So that's really important to understand. So if your doctor is when you're early stage, just been diagnosed and you're starting treatment with an early stage cancer, and your doctor in, your, in the hospital you're going to will refer you to palliative care just to manage the treatment side effects sometimes, which uh, in some institutions are managed by the oncologist, but some will bring on. I think, even, and I think Dr. Often mentioned that sometimes when it, it, it's, people aren't responding to what the usual treatment side effect management would be, they would refer them to someone else. So this is a very important concept, and unfortunately, these words, of course, in, in the cancer field, sometimes there are words that are really hard to understand, and I think this is one that is often um, uh, one that really is. Um, an important term and, and, and one that one should not be afraid of. It's a term that really is, it really has to do with managing side effects of treatment, any pain, um, any symptoms, and it's along the entire spectrum of having um, cancer from point of diagnosis, early stage, treatable disease. Um, so that's really important to understand that as well. 
Wow. Well, this has been quite, um, well, I think we've covered um, almost all the topics that, all the questions that we've been, I was just saying, they're going to be late-breaking questions. Um, I'm pretty sure we haven't left anything out here um, that someone really wants us to address. Um, so this is an um, interesting question, and this will be our last late-breaking question. Um, uh, so this is the question. Um, how do I find out about reliable studies from my type and stage of cancer? So Dr. Offen, if you want to start with that one. So that's a very... Um a very good question and a very complicated answer. So there are many ways to look up articles and journal articles um, about the cancer, uh, a type of cancer and a stage of cancer. And importantly, I think the, the most important part of the answer to this question is going to be you want to probably go to journals that are what we call peer-reviewed, meaning scientific journals that are kind of looked over very closely by other doctors and other members of the care team. And we look at those in, that information and say that it makes sense and we agree with the way it was written. You want to be careful with just going on Google and looking things up because you may get some good information, but it's hard to know what's real. Um, one place you can look at that has what we call peer-reviewed journals on it would be pubmed.gov, which is a large repository where you can look up different articles for cancer, for other medical problems, uh, actually for many different types of science problems, even outside of medicine. Um, so if you went in there and you typed in, for instance, stage two lung cancer with a specific gene, you may find some very useful articles there, and those are likely of higher scientific quality. The other thing you can always feel free to do is ask your doctor. So um, when I referenced before, there was an article a few years ago about hospice. If you had a specific question and you came to my clinic and said, what are the good articles on this, I would be more than happy to print them out and hand them to you. Um, so by all means, do your research, but I agree, it's important you know where to find it. And I would say your doctor's a great resource, um, as well as PubMed.gov, but it can be a little kind of hard to navigate because it's got millions probably of different research articles on it, but that is a pretty trustworthy site. Then of course you would, can go. Oh yes, yes, Dr. Kerr, yes. Sure. I would I would just echo what Dr. Offen said, um, particularly related to pathology if you're interested in learning about your particular cancer type, not so much the therapies. There also are very good um journal articles out there probably about your specific tumor type. The important thing in the pathology literature, though, to recognize is that sometimes the names change over time and our thinking about a particular type of tumor might change over time. So it's really important to talk with your doctor about the articles you may have found about your tumor to make sure that this is sort of the most up-to-date way that we think about this particular tumor. And so um, I agree that looking at, at journal articles, peer-reviewed journal articles, is is the thing that I would do and the references I would give to patients, but it's important to ask your doctor, you know, is this still a good reference to read about the particular issue that I'm concerned about? Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You have been phenomenal. You um, can't hear us all applauding you, but we certainly are. And um, I want to thank all of our participants who've asked really such really terrific questions. Um, and I know there are still people in queue with questions. So, um, And I want you to know that this is part one of a five-part series, so there's lots more to come. This is just a, a taste of what's to come, so there's more, more, many more topics that we're going to be addressing. Um, um, so um, for those of you who still have questions, of course, your healthcare team, has been said by our speakers, are a good place to start. And then I would recommend, of course, the National Cancer Institute. Um, they're a wonderful resource. They also... Um, they, their information specialists can also address clinical trials. So you can contact um, them at the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237, and you'll get that information, of course, um, in your, when you get the evaluation. And they also have a website, um, cancer.gov, and there's a, help, there's a live chat feature where you can post your questions and, and have a discussion with them. And we also mentioned in terms of clinical trials, clinicaltrials.gov. 
In addition, um, for those, and also of course all the resources that we have partnered with all those organizations can be a great resource to you, depending on the type of cancer you have, the resources that they have will be very helpful to you. And for those of you who would like to talk with one of our oncology social workers or access any services from Cancer Care that I've mentioned, you know, please contact us and you'll be getting out again our telephone numbers and website. Again, I think you've gotten them and a lot of the materials you've, re you've received already. Um, and uh, I do want to just mention that we do have coming up um, a program, that, the part two of this is uh, Cancer in the Workplace, Understanding Your Legal Protections. So that's coming up on May 29th. And then we also have a program on new trends in cancer survivorship, um, a separate program uh, coming up on uh, Tuesday, June 18th. So, um, and you'll be, getting a, you'll be getting a calendar of all of our upcoming programs so that you can plan your schedules um, if you can attend them. I should say that this program will be available also on our website as a podcast. Give it about two days and it'll be up uh, as a podcast. And that's true for all of our programs. So you can listen to them again. If you think you heard something and want to listen to it again, you can do that. Um, also, that's true for all of our programs. And again, I want to thank you all for your participation, and we don't want anyone to leave the call today feeling you're alone. I know that we know that people often feel sometimes alone, but we want you to now know that there are lots of services and organizations out there to help you, and um, some of them actually have 24-hour call centers. Um, the American Cancer Society does have one of those, and so there are some places that you can call any time of the day or night, and that's really important for many of you to know about. So um, again, you'll be getting those resources um, at the um, when you get your evaluation, and you'll and you will know that there are places that you can call. Again, thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.